All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. That's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, then down the uh, the middle row of seats, column of seats, rather, there are a couple Bibles stacked on top of each other, and you're welcome to grab one of those and use it as we study the Word this morning. Uh, the Gospel of John is on page 577. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to finish chapter chapter 3 today. So it'll be uh, verse 22 through 36, 22 through 36. Grab your smartphone, your Bible, or you can cheat and, and watch the screen. We're going to read these out loud together. So uh, let's, let's start reading. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall, see, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a new day. We thank you for um, beautiful weather uh, and spring leading into summer in full effect. Uh, we thank you for the gathering of your church today. And in the reading and under the hearing of your word, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to see all that you would have for us in this particular passage in John chapter 3. We pray that you would open our spirits to receive uh, both your word and and the exhortation that comes with it. And Lord, that by your gospel that you would uh, change us, make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So transitions are critical throughout all of our lives. Uh, most of you in here whether through a work experience or perhaps even in life, have experienced very important transitions. I think of um, any corporation that has a change in CEO. Perhaps you uh, are a military person here in the crowd, and uh, you know, in the military, you have the opportunity to change jobs almost every year. Uh, and that's just staying in, in the same location. Perhaps your commander changes out. Think about all the things that happen when just one simple company or battery troop level commander changes out. He comes in with a different train of thought and different way of doing things. And 
Sometimes the subordinate leaders along with him or her change out as well. Probably one of the most prominent transitions that happens in our country is the change of presidential administration. Think about that. I mean, it's like it's this giant, giant sucking sound, as Ross Perot used to say, of of people and of thought and of philosophy that switches over. You know, it's the same. You know, they're governing the same people. The the rules really don't change. But really, the, the interpretation of those rules and how they're enacted all changes. And that really is the essence of of transition in any organization. Now, I say that. Because in our text today, we see one of the most important transitions in that, that the whole world has ever seen. It is a transition between old and new. It's a break between uh, the, the covenant of works and the, the Mosaic law, where in order to be accepted by God, you had to obey. And the transition goes from that to a covenant of grace and the covenant of grace says that I'm accepted not because of what I do, but because of what someone has done for me in my place, namely Jesus. Specifically, it's a transition between the ministries of John the Baptist and and Jesus Christ. And for that reason, that makes this particular passage of Scripture one of, I would say, the the critical passages in all of Scripture. We see a a very unique transition that doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, We've we've been uh, in the Gospel of John as a series for a couple of months, for those of you that have been with us. If you're joining us here for the first time, um, we're inching along. We're going to go through the entire book. John has 21 chapters. We've been going at it for for two months, and we're just at chapter three. Going to finish that today. Um, we're not trying to engulf John in all at once. We're trying to really unpack it and see what it says for us. Um, and, and, you know, to do that, you got to really dive into it. Uh, John gives us the impetus for why he wrote this, this book of the Bible all the way at the end of, you know, of, of his writing. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written, these things, all the things that he wrote from beginning to end, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what John wants us to, to gather. He wants us to believe. He wants us to have true, true faith in, in what he has been a witness to, primarily that Jesus is God, that he came from heaven, sent by God to uh, to reveal to us all about heaven and bring the fullness of God in his person into our lives. And that by believing in him, who he is and what he came to do, that we would be forgiven of our sins and that we would come. I mean, we would come to life. That's what John wants to do. And John goes about it very uniquely. He uh, he talks a lot about signs and miracles. And so he he shows us the supernatural. And John also shows us like various encounters that that people like you and I have with Jesus. And he shows us how one simple encounter with Jesus basically changes your whole life. And in all of that, again, John wants us to believe. John chapter three is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because it answers one particular great question. It answers this. What is God's plan for the salvation of? 
of the world. And if I were, you know, if I were in a Sunday school class and my Sunday school teacher asked me that, what has God done to plan for the salvation of the world? Of course, the only right answer that you need to know in Sunday school is, is Jesus, right? What has God done to plan for the salvation of the world? God has given us Jesus. And uh, if I mean, if you could just grasp that, that really is the answer to everything that that satisfies us in life. But John doesn't just stay there. He actually unpacks that. And this thought of what God has done to um, to plan for the salvation of the world is the is the backdrop to this particular passage that we're going to look at today. It is the setting for uh, for understanding this transition that takes place. And here's the setting. Je- uh, Jesus has been in Jerusalem for some time. He came from Capernaum, um, and then he uh, made that long trek all the way down to Jerusalem, and he's celebrating the Passover. In chapter 2, we read that Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he saw some, uh, some hypocrisy going on. He came to the temple courts expecting to be able to worship God with, with the people of God, and he saw uh, money changers taking advantage of, of uh, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to worship. He saw animals being sold and, and, and traffic that really shouldn't have been there. They were, uh, they were getting in the way of the true worship of God. And, and Jesus, in this moment, I mean, he invents the table flip. You guys know what the, t- the table flip is? It's when you just take a table. I can't do it with my podium because I need it. He, t- he just takes it. It's like, and he flips it. And he does that all in the temple courts area. Um, so anytime you see the table, the table flip on TV, Jesus, 2000 years ago, invented that. He invented it because they were they were interfering with the true worship of God. Next, we see Jesus encounter a guy named Nicodemus. And through uh, a, a conversation with Nicodemus, he teaches us of our need to be born again. And in that same interchange, we learn of God's gift of of his only son, of Jesus to die in our place for our sin and of the eternal life that he gives to all who believe. And that brings us to our text today. So verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. When, when John says after this, he's basically saying, he's summing it up, he's saying, after all this Passover stuff happened, after Jesus met with Nicodemus, after he invented the table flip and turned over the, the money changing tables and all that stuff, this is where Jesus was. Jesus and his entourage head outside of uh, Jerusalem pop- popular and they go into the Judean countryside. The text says Jesus was baptizing. Um, and, I, you know, I guess John is just given a summary of, of the things that he remembers happening because he was on the ground there. As we as we read a little further, actually, next week, when we get to chapter four, we learn Jesus actually wasn't physically baptizing people himself. His disciples were doing it. Jesus was standing by greeting the people in a hobnobbing with folks uh, and having a good time. Uh, actually, four cha- chapter four, verse two says this, the disciples were the ones uh, baptizing, not Jesus Verse 23, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. I grew up Baptist and I would tell you uh, for a Baptist, this I mean, Baptists love this passage because most Baptists believe that baptism should should occur by full immersion. I mean, like like a dunk, right? Not not pouring water on you, not sprinkling water uh, as a kid, a Baptist believes that you, you give a profession of your faith and as a symbol of you uh, being forgiven and being cleansed, 
you, you get baptized. And, you know, it seems that John is agreeing that, with that right here. You know, a lot of times we can we can read uh, these scripture verses and it seems like they're giving us uh, an exact chronology. This happened and then this happened and then this happened. And that necessarily is not what's what's going on here. Um, we should assume that, you know, these people are walking everywhere they go and they got stuff. They got baggage. Some of them have families you know, following Jesus. Uh, they're bringing food and provisions. And when it says Jesus and his entourage went out into the Judean countryside, they likely are going there and hanging out for weeks or months. So Jesus and his folk are probably in the Judean countryside for about six months. Why is that important? It's important because a lot of times we can read these verses and say, all right, so Passover happened. Jesus went down to the countryside. John was there, too. And immediately there's this transition that happened. John starts to fade away. Jesus comes into prominence and his ministry starts where what's happening is you got these gagglings of, of people that are intermingling with each other. And over time, the transition happens, almost like, uh, you know, in the military, when a unit is going to, uh, to Iraq. They're there for a little bit of time, one or two weeks, and they slowly are, you know, left seat, right seat, right. Those those terms are familiar with half of y'all in here, probably. I don't know how to civilianize that. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. It's a slow go kind of a thing. Um, mostly important, most importantly, this link up between John and Jesus and their disciples is intentional. And we, you don't necessarily get that in the text. Th- this was an appointed time for John the Baptist, whose sole mission was to point people to Jesus, to, to do that when the two of them are ministering almost side by side. And for people who, who thought John was the one they were supposed to be following, for, for them to come to John and say, hey, I told you, I'm not the one. He's the one. And guess what? He's right over there. And you should go follow him now. That's what's happening here. That's the setting. Uh, the next phase, the next thing that we see in this text happens in verses 25 through 29. And I call this out with the old. And what really is unfolding is we see a, a decrease in John the Baptist's ministry. John is baptizing in one spot. Jesus is baptizing uh, somewhere close to that. And it leads to a confrontation. Verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Um, there's a consistent theme of ceremonial uh, purification in John's writings. If you recall chapter two, when Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, uh, he went to a wedding. They ran out of wine. And so uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, gets involved. And Jesus tells them those those ceremonial cleansing jars over there. Go ahead and bring those to me. Dip some out and the water, you know, the miracle happened. The water turned into wine. What were those jars for? They were they were for ceremonial cleansing of people's feet. Uh, I mean, the Jews were obsessed with being pure, both in their hands and in their heart. Why is that? Because the Mosaic law required them to be so. One of the symbols of purification was baptism. And of course, we see we see this idea of baptism popping up all over John. You know, John, John the Baptist obviously comes and he gives a baptism of repentance. We don't see Jesus being baptized here, but it's, it's in that message there. The other gospels portray it. And then here, of course, uh, again, we see this this other unfolding of 
uh, a purification through baptism. What did the baptism do? Actually, nothing. You know, it, it may have got a little dirt off of them, but ceremonially, it was preparing their hearts and their bodies to go and worship the true God. And that's why baptism was important to um, to the disciples. And so here's a scene. You got the disciples of, of John the Baptist um, who think that John is the money and his way is the right way. And then you got this lone Jew. It just says one Jew. We don't know if this Jew was uh, a disciple of Jesus. We don't know if he was an advocate of Jesus. We don't know if he was someone who had been in John, John the Baptist's camp and had defected and saw Jesus as John was pointing him to, to Jesus and said, you know what, I'm over here now. But it, it's almost like a, a, a school rivalry. You come to a, school, a gymnasium and you got two teams getting ready to go against each other and the fans are in the stands and they're saying that, we're number one. No, we're number one. No, we're number one. No, we're number one. And this, I mean, I, this, is, this is how I see it. All right, so I, obviously I'm animating this. But it's this tit for tat. They're, they're hassling each other over the issue of baptism. And, and here's the argument. They're saying, whose baptism is, is, is the greater? I mean, John the Baptist is the one that came in saying we had, we had to get baptized for the re- repentance of our sins. And so, I mean, that seems right to do. But who I mean, this guy, Jesus, is over here and he's doing the same thing. And so you got Jesus, G- John, the Baptist disciple saying John, the Baptist baptism has got to be greater because he was the first and he started it first. But then you have this one lone Jew who obviously was holding his own, saying the exact opposite. It's a tit for tat. And neither one of them seems to be winning the argument. And so John, the Baptist disciples run back to John, the Baptist And they try to entice him to get involved. Verse 26. And they came to John and and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Um, This should be a funny scene to us. I mean, you got to sort of read into the text. Um, They're basically saying, John, remember you told us that someone is coming who's greater than you? And he was going to to baptize and he was the son of God, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Well, well, guess what? He's over there and he's baptizing and people are going to him. You got to stop it. That's not supposed to happen. I mean, you, you, you see the, the the I mean, it's just ludicrous, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and here's what's going on. They were loyal to John. They weren't trying to be. Um, disrespectful to Jesus. They just didn't know who Jesus was at this point. They're, they befriended John. They're loyal to him. They understood his message and they had bought into all that John was and all that John was saying. And when they saw Jesus coming on the scene, stealing some of their folk, they were dissatisfied and they got a little bit out of shape on behalf of, of their mentor, Rabbi John the Baptist. And, and um, I mean, it keeps on going. Verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. And so John basically says, hey, dudes, I I know you think there's something wrong here. It's not. This is what I was made for. All of my life was leading up to this one point right here. Jesus coming and doing greater things than I was meant to do. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so John is saying, I've been telling you all along to go over there and see Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. 
Why are you trying to make me jealous about something for which I was born to make this happen? I've been telling you all along, he is the one. There's a tremendous truth here for us, and this is what it is. John the Baptist's point was that we have to be content ourselves with the place and provision that God has given us. Think about that in the context of your own life. Have you ever gotten jealous or envious about somebody that was that was doing something, um, perhaps the same thing that you were that you thought was your thing to do? And they seem to be doing it a little bit better. And God was blessing it. Doesn't that make you like then it just irk you sometimes it's like I've been working hard at this thing. And I've been putting a lot of time in it and I feel like I'm laboring and I got a word from God. And that person, I mean, they just showed up and people are just like, what's wrong? I mean, that doesn't make sense. What he's saying is we can only you can only be faithful to the things that God has given you to, to do. And so when God gives it to you, receive his blessing and be faithful in it. If you if God if God blesses you greatly, then be faithful to, to steward the, the great way that he's blessed you. And if God blesses you modestly, be faithful to steward the modest way that God has blessed you. You know, a lot of times, even in church ministries, we get caught up in this this tug of war of who has the best ministry, who has the best church. They're doing this. We're doing that. And and honestly, folks, it shouldn't be. You want to know how to discern. And I say this hesitantly and I say it humbly. You want to know the right church to go to go to the church where you're not puffing up the man, but the man is pointing you to Jesus. And that, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's like, you know, God blessed me and he blessed me such that all the, I mean, the thousands of you are coming to hear my message and you're repenting of your sins and you're cleansing yourself. And I'm telling you, that's all I got. I've done all that Jesus has prescribed and ordained for me to do. That's it. I ain't got nothing else. But guess what? My replacement is here. He's over there. His name is Jesus. Go get some. I mean, wouldn't life be great if we could just come to grips with that in our own souls? Um, John keeps unfolding this. Verse 29, he illustrates this tremendous truth. Verse 29, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The, the focal point of verse 29 is is the subject of this the the, the part B of that that verse the friend of the bridegroom in in Hebrew tradition the the bridegroom was like a best man in the weddings that we see in our day but I mean he had greater responsibilities I mean this the, the bridegroom was responsible for for bringing the couple together and and almost every part of of their courtship the the ceremony the marriage uh, itself and the consummation of the marriage. I mean, he opened the wedding. Invi- I mean, he printed out the wedding invitations. He opened up the gifts. Uh, he officiated at the wedding. He was the the host at the the feast. Most importantly, he was the guy that guarded the bridal chamber. The bridal chamber would be that room that the the, the couple are going to go to uh, after they get married and consummate their marriage. I remember Larissa and I got married. Uh, we got married in 
Martinsville, Virginia, and we stayed at the reception a little bit too long. We should have just left those folks there. So we were exhausted, and uh, we got in. We, we we changed. This was our third third outfit of the day. So we changed, got into whatever car I was driving at the time. We drove two hours south. What was I thinking? Drove two hours south to uh, to Raleigh. We got a hotel, and I had done it right. I had done it right. I had some wine sitting there. Uh, we were starving because we didn't get anything to eat at our eat at our uh, reception. And so, guess what I did, guys? Don't do this, folks that haven't gotten married yet. I went to McDonald's. <laughs> we chowed down on some Mickey D's, all right? And then my wife, because we were, we were exhausted, she fell asleep on me, <laughs> knocked out. But like a trooper, I woke her up. <laughs> That's a good story for Mother's Day. Uh, I woke her up. Um, but here's the deal. If I had had a bridegroom, if my best man, John Harmon, had followed me all the way down to the, the bridal chamber, he would have been there and he would have opened the door. And I mean, he would have just made everything, you know, right for me instead of me having to orchestrate all that stuff. So this this bridegroom, uh, he was a very important figure. When he heard the groom's voice, is what the text says. He hears the groom's voice. Uh, that let him know that the bridegroom, that the bride and the groom were on their way, and that also let him know that his job was almost done. He had gotten the couple together. He had put in the bride's hand, and, and the bride and the groom's, uh, the bridegroom's hand, and that was it. He could smile and walk away. And and so John the Baptist is saying this in verse twenty nine. He said, "That's me." That, that's me. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. The bride is the church. The bride is at, at this point, the bride is, is Israel. All those Jews who call themselves believers in God. And John is, is saying, I've taken their hands. I've joined them together. I'm done. Hey, so long. There's not a hint of jealousy in John the Baptist in this passage. He knows that his, his mission is to do this and and when he sees it coming to pass right there in the countryside of Judea, uh, he says, you know what? I, it's time to fade away. And, and this is nothing but a picture of the humble faithfulness of John the Baptist. We see the transition, the actual transition from power to power in verse 30. Verse 30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. One scholar comments, these are some of the greatest words ever to fall from the lips of a mortal man. The important word here is the word must. Must. John knew that God had set an eternal plan um, in motion and that he was a part of it. And he was seeing it culminate right there in his life, right before him. And the word must that he utters is his acknowledgement that all this, it, it had to happen. More than anything, we see the humility of God's servant, John the Baptist. And what I would exhort you is to see that this is a picture of what true Christianity um, is. I mean, it's those who make a difference in the world by, by being like John the Baptist. They're people. True Christians are people who are resolved to make little of themselves so that Jesus will be exalted, believed and followed in the world. I, I think if we had more people like that, the world would be a different place. If we had more Christians that made little of themselves and made much of Jesus. Think about how the world would be different if we could do just that. This is just for my own life. 
the kind of humility that John displays here is, is supernatural. Uh, you know, we could read Galatians 5. Humility is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. But, it, yeah, you know, if I were writing the Bible, I would have stuck that in there. Because it's hard to be humble like John is humble in this passage, not without God's help. What's the picture of humility the Bible wants us to take? It's, it's, it's Philippians. It's Philippians 2 where it says Jesus, Jesus was humble to the point that he stretched out his arms and he died on the cross in our place for our sin. Folks, that's a lot of humility. And we can't be that humble without God's help. But, but John says, must. And this, this really does unveil the pattern that he wants us to, to, to follow as Christians. First, it's a pattern of, of faith, of coming to faith. He says to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 7, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Being good isn't good enough. You need more than just to be good. You need to be born again. You need to, you need the, the, to be born of water and spirit. You need the forgiveness of your sins, and you need the spirit to come in and cleanse you from all those things that you can't cleanse yourself from, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 14, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that means the way of salvation is death on a cross. And so our, our, faith, uh, our faith brings us to an acknowledgement of, of the crucified Christ. Our devotion to Christ brings a humble desire for his glory. And really, that, that's what Jesus is, is, is pushing you toward, to be more like him, to be more humble, to be more Christ-like. All right, the last, the last part of this passage, verse 31 to 36, is we see the transition really is complete. We see uh, the decrease of John the Baptist's uh, ministry. He really fades away. And then we see um, the, the text starts focusing in on Jesus, on his supremacy, on all that, all that uh, the, the words that John uses before here says that he is the son of God, the lamb of God who comes to take away uh, the sins of the world. He that is God. We see that coming to fruition. A lot of people um, debate whether these are the words of John the Baptist. I mean, is this John the Baptist speaking or is it the John, the, John the evangelist? Um, I would tell you if you are reading out of the ESV, which is the translation that I'm reading, um, just look at the quotes. Uh, you can see in the, the, the portion that we previously read, verse 25 through 29, uh, those are all in quotes. These are John. This is John the Baptist saying all these things. And in verse 31 to 36, the ESV takes away the quotes. So they are saying John the evangelist is writing that. But I would tell you, I'm just this is an important distinction. Some scholars would say John the Baptist is writing this last part basically as a tribute. He's he's giving his his last word, his last invitation um, on on who Jesus is. He's formally uh, you know, pushing Jesus for turning over the, the prophetic mantle of ministry and then backing away. And so perhaps this is John saying that regardless of which John is is talking here in this last part of the, the text, uh, John is asserting five things. And the first thing is that Jesus has all authority. In other words, he is above all. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so John asserts that Jesus possesses a personality that is greater than any other human being that has lived in all the earth. 
He's saying, unlike every other human being, even the prophets, Jesus came into the world from heaven. And, and what he's what he's doing for us is he's, he's going back to John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He, he's saying this is in other words, this is saying Jesus is God. He's playing on the identity of Jesus. He's the very son of God. The most important truth that John portrays in all of his gospel. And because of who Jesus is, he possesses an authority that no one else has. The second thing that that he asserts here is that Jesus spoke of what he knew. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen, what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. What what, what John's uh, exhortation to us here is that when we read the teachings of the Bible and it's Jesus that's speaking, we're reading not mere speculation. It's not someone that hasn't been there. He's saying Jesus comes from heaven itself. If you want to know what life is like in heaven, if you want to know what God is like and to have lived for eternity, then you would be foolish not to come to someone like Jesus because he is unfolding, unpacking for us what that life is like. Think about it in your in your own life. If you want to know something about baseball, why would you go to someone that doesn't watch or doesn't pay attention to baseball? If you're in the army, I mean, you could go to somebody in the Navy and ask about army life. But they I mean, they're going to just confuse you. Right. I mean, I don't have Scott Williams here, so I can't pick on the Navy, but I want to. <laughs> but if you're if you want to know something about the army, you go and ask a soldier because a soldier's been there, right? Huh. That was weak. <laughs> and so if you want to know about God, there's no better source for truth about God, heaven and salvation than Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where he came from. Jesus came from heaven to reveal the truth to mankind about who God is. Jesus was God. And here's the importance of this, at least the importance, I think, that for you all as you engage with with our society. You know, a common objection to the Christian faith is, as many will say, well, I mean, aren't all religious leaders the same? I mean, isn't Jesus the same as Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad? Aren't they just all the same, trying to get us to believe all the same thing and trying to get us all to, 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 to know God and love God? People would also say, well, well, aren't aren't the leaders the same, but also aren't the religions all the same thing? Mormonism and and Catholicism and uh, Judaism and Buddhism and Islam, aren't they all trying to get us to to do the same thing, to, to know God and to love God? And even if you don't understand this quite yet, you should say no. Just say it no emphatically. Well, no. Why? Because my pastor told me. Say that and see if it works. But but here's the here's the rationale. First, in, in all those other religions, those other false religions, there's no other leader that professed to be and do and come from the, the, the places that Jesus professes. to. Jesus is the only religious leader that says, I came from heaven to earth. I, I am God and I've come to reveal what God is like for you. There's no other earthly religion that. A leader professes to be and do all the things that Jesus came to do and be. The other thing is, in all those other religions, and I would include Catholicism and definitely Mormonism with this, all those other religions have this one unique perspective. And this is not, 
I, I, I am, I, I'm being reductionistic here, okay? Um, they say that the way that you come into relationship with God is primarily by being good. Did you hear that? Many of you live your lives right now in your relationship with God, thinking that the way that God likes me, the way that God loves me, the way that I get his blessing is if I'm good. And Christianity would say, ah, no, good is a byproduct of you coming to God. That Christianity would say, you can't, you can't be good enough to, for God to accept you and love you. Christianity would say, you're accepted by God based upon the goodness of another. And the other is Jesus. Jesus was good for us. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law, the Old Testament. And by God's plan, he goes to the cross and he dies in our place for our sin. And that's why this faith thing is so important, because the Bible says, and this is this, this sounds so simple. It says, if you would simply put your faith in Jesus to believe that he said that that all that he says about himself is is true and that you would receive this Jesus, John uses the word believe, then God would gift you a relationship with God through his son. And and, and God calls you good, whether you're good or not. Why? Because Jesus is good for you. God sees your goodness through a tunnel that goes through Jesus. And I mean, that's good news. That's good news for all of us. And so here's here's how here's how I sum all that up. A Christian is someone who has seen the truth of Jesus in God's word and accepts him to the exclusion of every other savior. Jesus spoke what he knew. We would be fools to not receive what he knew as truth for us. Thirdly, Jesus testimony agrees with God. I got to speed up. Verse 33. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And this verse basically says Jesus agrees with God. And, and what makes this point important is that many people don't understand that. Some of us would say, uh, even people you've talked to, they say, you know, I believe in God, but I'm just not sure about this Jesus guy. I don't know if I can believe all that that people. I mean, I can't believe all the hype about Jesus. And so here's the deal. If you you can't believe in God and not believe in Jesus, you can't believe in Jesus and not believe in God because they're the same. They are the same. Jesus is God. He, he is God. They're inseparable. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you believe the truth about God. And if you believe the truth about God, you must believe in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, Jesus was sent by God with full Holy Spirit presence. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Uh, this this verse gives a, a kind of a certification of Jesus. It's, it's like that stamp of approval. It says God has given him a couple of things like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make you such that everybody receives you by this little certificate I'm going to give you. And it's and it's like this internal dwelling of God in Jesus. And part of the thing that made Jesus humanity so special and, and part of the reason why the Bible says that we're supposed to be like him, do like him, and that we're conformed into his image is because when Jesus was on earth, he really lived life as a human. But how did he do all the things that he did? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is the, these are some great words said about Jesus. 
Isaiah says in, in chapter 11, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord rest, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And here's another passage. When Jesus began his ministry, uh, the gospel writer Luke quotes these, these verses out of Isaiah as well. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so this full endowment of the spirit is reflected in, in how Jesus lived his life. He was always attuned to what God was saying. He was able to perform miracles because the Holy Spirit was in him to, to do that. He always knew. I mean, Jesus always conveyed the very word of God. Ultimately, God certified who Jesus was and the spirit dwelling in him by raising him from the dead. Fifthly, God gave Jesus all supremacy. Uh, supremacy. Verse 35. The father loves his son and has given all things into his hand. And this basically says, I mean, God made Jesus supreme because he wanted him to be supreme. I know that sounds simplistic, but that really is it. God has always cherished his his son, his eternal son. And when he sends him to the world to to, to fulfill the mission of reconciling uh, man to God, God continues to make Jesus supreme because of his great sacrifice in our place for our sin. Jesus, uh, God says these great words at Jesus baptism. He he speaks down from heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And he says, hey, this is my son whom 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 is well pleased. I, I love him. Do as he says. That's a sign of of how supreme God has made Jesus. And, and with that, really, I mean, that's the text. The, the transition is complete. John the Baptist fades away. Honestly, what we see in, in the other Gospels is John uh, continues to do ministry, but his following lessons. Eventually, he's put in prison. Eventually, he's beheaded as a martyr of the faith. And these are the words that the Bible has to say about John the Baptist, that Jesus says this. Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest man that ever lived. John the Baptist. Beheaded, martyred for his faith. And then from this point point on, I mean, Jesus is in full, full life. He comes and measures in the power, uh, ministers in the power of the spirit and, and people come to him. And so I'll close uh, with these thoughts. Now, earlier, I started with this idea that John three is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because it answers this great question. What was God? Uh, what has God planned for the salvation uh, of his world? And of course, the answer is Jesus. And, and John 3 really ends by asking the equally great question of, of what do I make of Jesus? And, and really, you have you've got two options. Do we respond to him, trusting in faith, all the Bible says about him, or, or do I or do I am I am I hardened in disbelief? And according to this last verse, verse 36, uh, the answer to that question that you would answer personally determines nothing less than your eternal destiny. This is verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So according to John, you, you got to do two things with, with this text. You got to do two things with this passage. You got to do two things with, with Jesus. 
You either believe him and receive him and receive eternal life or you have to deal with the wrath of God. And, and those perhaps for you today don't seem like ever present realities of things that you got to solve in your life today. But I would tell you because I just did a memorial service yesterday and, and death is death is never it's never certain. I mean, you never know when it's going to come. And so your options receive in faith the savior who reveals truth from heaven. Or the other option is reject Jesus. And so I would exhort you to faith in Jesus. Treasure what the Bible says about the son of God. Let's believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the timely, the timeliness of uh, timelessness of your your word. And also its timeliness. I thank you for the ministry of of people like John the Baptist, who, in Jesus own words, was the greatest man who ever lived on the earth. And what was great in our eyes about John the Baptist is that uh, he knew uh, who God had made him and he was diligent to do uh, with the gifts that God had blessed him with um, all that God had called him to do. He brought people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, and then he pointed them to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the the folks in this room that you would help us to to be content with how God has wired us, how God has called us, how God has blessed us. And would you make us people who who serve you with all that you've placed in our hands, that we, we do it fervently, that we do it diligently, that you would keep us from envy and jealousy of other people's blessings of their gifts and of their ministries. And Lord, that you would, uh, that you give us the wherewithal to point people to Jesus. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing in life. Help us to be a church full of people that see our mission as pointing people to Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.